I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll be hearing from Sergeant Bill Taylor. Bill served in the U.S. Marine Corps and was sent to Vietnam in 1967 as an 18-year-old and served there for 13 months. During that time, he narrowly escaped death on multiple occasions and was wounded three times. Every platoon commander, sergeant, and squad leader he served with was either wounded or killed. Oh, my name is uh, Bill Taylor. Um, I was a Hollywood Marine to start off, and uh, I ended up in the 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, Charlie Company. And uh, we were a special unit. We were a unit that was uh, designed to uh, defeat the NVA and the Viet Cong in a special way. We were a reactionary special landing force. And uh, we were on the USS Okinawa and later on on the uh, USS Iwo Jima LPHs, uh, helicopter ships. So whenever any unit that was sweeping or any unit that was in trouble, they would call in, you know, like a company or a battalion of uh, 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines. Now, usually we're on battalion uh, strength type of operations. And I remember the first time we actually were going into combat. We're going into Operation Beaver Cage. That was another one. There was Operation Union at that time also. And uh, four battalions of Marines were closing in on the North Vietnamese that had entered the Quezon Valley to, you know, they wanted to get food. That's where they were getting their supplies. So uh, this was a, an area that was definitely Viet Cong and NVA. They were very hostile towards the Marines, a lot of snipers and booby traps. So they didn't expect us. The other three battalions uh, were kind of closing in on them. And, and then we helicoptered right in deep in the valley and then swept straight north to the hills. It was so hot. Oh, my God, you wouldn't believe. You know, we trained in Okinawa for the special landing force. And then, uh, you know, you had 80, 85 as the tops there in Okinawa. But in Vietnam, we're like 110, humid. It was absolutely horrendous. You know, we didn't get water, but every three days that was flown to us in the field. And we each had two canteens. We had to watch what we're doing. And that first day, most most went through at least a half a can, a full canteen and maybe a, another half uh, before the, the middle of the day. It was just excruciating. You're carrying 50 pounds worth of food and ammunition, uh, all the supplies you need. And, you know, you're just trudging through that, you know, through the rice paddies and through small hills and you're working your way up to the top. I mean, you could see as you were getting closer, you knew you were in trouble. Um, I remember the first time someone shot at me. Uh, so we're sweeping and then all of a sudden an AK, you know, just shot out. And I remember that experience as being so different than actually practicing in Okinawa for you know, for an assault or a sweep. I mean, when someone is actually shooting at you and the rounds are bouncing around all around you, you're just such a different experience. What they were doing is slowing us down. They were, they were, they just wanted us to slow down. They were setting up for us in the uh, further on 
And um, so, you know, we'd flank that uh, sniper and he'd be gone. And then you'd move further and then you'd move another maybe half a mile, mile. And then I remember the first time, I mean, I remember the mortars. So what happened was I was a new guy and the old salts were the guys that came in from Quezon. Uh, they had the base there at Quezon and, and they came over to Okinawa and we joined them to beef up 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines to this incredible unit, 1,350 men. I remember hearing the the bloop sounds, bloop, 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 and the old salts are hitting the ground and, and all, all us, you know, F and G's uh, new guys, uh, we were just standing there wondering what these guys are doing and they're screaming at us, get down. And, you know, all of a sudden you hear this go over your head and explode behind you. Well, then you realize you never have to be told again. You know, you hear that bloop in the future, you're going to be down. And of course, you know, uh, we set up our mortars and uh, they were aimed at the top of the hill that we were going to. And uh, next thing you know, we did some flanking action. Of course, they were gone. And all they were doing was, you know, stalling for us coming down into the future. And and that's exactly what happened. You know, we sent a patrol up ahead and they managed to get to the top of the hill and they actually saw the the Viet Cong with their black pajamas uh, watching us and reporting our positions at all times. So they opened fire, of course, and uh, they were too far away to actually get a kill. And um, so, you know, we, we swept up and the next thing you know, we, as soon as we got into the hills, that's when they started mortaring us. And I mean, just those two little experiences, the mortars and the snipers or the, you know, being shot at was one thing. But when you have hundreds of people opening up on you and, and uh, you know, some guys are getting hit, you're getting yourself down. And then, and then that evening, it got so bad. It was unbelievable. We were told uh, on the lines that they're probably going to try to overrun us tonight. And uh, it was so terrifying waiting there, sitting in your hole, just waiting for them, you know, clearing your field of fire so that you could get at them. And I mean, I remember in the middle of the night, just listening and hearing this sound up in the sky, like an airplane, just this slow and all of a sudden it got closer and louder and louder. And then all of a sudden out of the nowhere, it just right out of the sky, this beam of light comes down and then uh, maybe a two second, three second delay, you hear the roar of these machine guns, these mini guns coming from a flying platform and it was spooky. And he was up there just just spraying the area. They say it could cover a football field, every square inch of a football field in a minute. That's how many rounds are coming out of this. And they have enough rounds to, to lay out a football field or more. And of course, they had some infrared so they knew where they were at. And they were just, they were just blowing them away. And then uh, next thing you know, there was nothing really happening that night. You know, they must have pulled back or got the hell out of there. Uh, I remember you know, the days that followed that they got us trapped into different areas that we would always like go after them. And as soon as we did, they were setting up traps is what was basically happening. So our headquarters, our people who were leading us were, you know, catching on, we're learning how to do this whole thing. And I remember getting mortared. I remember seeing uh, the CP getting mortared and uh, uh, the XO, he ran down and uh, he was running to the the CEO, uh, Captain Rechek, and 
all of a sudden they started getting mortared and he got down and you know, boom, 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 you know, just like crazy. And then all of a sudden it seemed like it stopped and he got up the uh, XO and that's when this explosion happened right next to him, cut the guy in half, right. That was right next to him and knocked him down to the ground. And it looked like he was dead too. And I, you know, I remember they were, they carried him over to the side and eventually they, they took all the guys that were dead they put him aside and all the guys that were wounded they were calling in helicopters and you know these pilots uh hmm 263 they were just incredible you know we didn't have hueys i mean marines we always got the tail end of everything and uh we had these they looked like grasshoppers you might say or a boxcar and it would come in and the nva and vc were just pounding that you know and these pilots were so brave you know they were just getting all the, the all of the wounded and uh i remember that helicopter taking off and i remember seeing that uh, the gunner on the side with his m60 just you know just blazing away at the where the firing was coming from and and he made it out of there and when they got back i i think they had to get rid of the helicopter because it had so many holes in it and uh, i remember leaving that operation with mortars coming in and I'll never forget those mortars because I had nightmares uh, when I came home from Vietnam about getting hit with mortars, thinking I was going to die so many times, so many times. So, and that was our first, that was our first battle. And that was nothing compared to the future battles that were coming. And, you know, you're terrified, you're wondering, Jesus, uh, you know, if this is the first battle, I hope I don't have to go through many more. Well, that's not what the case, uh, you know, in it. In Operation Bow Charger, you know, we ended up back on the ship for maybe two or three days. We'd be on a mission for a month out there, and they'd bring us back for supplies and stuff like that. And then they'd helicopter us in. And then we had Bow Charger in June. Uh, Bow Charger was pretty, pretty vicious. What we had to do was we had to go into the DMZ and many Marine units, and also the uh, they had uh, the South Vietnamese police and everything. They were going to get all these people that all these villagers that lived near the DMZ. They wanted them out because uh, the NVA were coming down. They were infiltrating over the DMZ, and they were creating such havoc. And these people were right in the middle. And you know, it was our job, uh, Special Landing Force Alpha. We had to come in and, along with the other units, Marine units that were in there, on boat charger. They called in the Amtraks and they put the people in the Amtraks and then they would get them out of there. And, our, you know, the uh, I remember that um, it was terrible because they knew the Marines were there and these people were being evacuated. And you think that, you know, they'd have a little mercy on their own people, but they slaughtered them as as much as they tried to kill the Marines. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. They got to fire at us from over on the other side of the DMZ. I mean, they actually used artillery. I mean, you, you think this is a mobile force, but they actually had emplacements buried in the ground on the other side of the DMZ, and they would be able to pull them out and shoot and then go back inside their caves along with their mortars. And they had cave systems up there in the DMZ that nobody really realized. You think you could just go in there and just wipe them out, but there were so many caves and um, underground entrances and things like that. It was like near to impossible. And of course, you can't go over to the other side 
to eliminate these different, uh, you know, artillery pieces. Well, anyway, we ended up getting a lot of people out of there and we had a lot of guys that were, were wounded and killed. We went through several other operations. As a matter of fact, we went through 25 operations in 11 months. And uh, in that time, uh, we we were awarded uh, two presidential unit citations uh, for the actions that we fought. One was Beaver Cage and one was Operation Buffalo. And Operation Buffalo was when we had the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines. Uh, it was the Bravo Company was uh, pretty much annihilated. That means like 250 men were either killed or wounded. There was only a few that weren't. And um, we had just gotten back on the ship. We didn't even have a chance to, you know, change our clothes or anything. We had to go right back out and right back into the DMZ. It was pretty vicious, uh, to tell you the truth. You know, we landed and we had a sweep. And uh, wherever we went, we just kept on getting hit with artillery. And we're supposed to attack a tree line. And that was like one of the most horrible experiences of my life. You know, it's just so surreal to think that, you know, they want us, we're all lined up, and we're going to attack a tree line. You know, how many times have you seen in movies, you know, of marching forward when it all goes wrong and everybody gets hit? And that's that was one of those battles. I remember Malloy and, and Pike were just to the left of me and were attacking that uh, that tree line. And uh, we had three tanks to support us. I mean, you'd think, well, well, we got three tanks. Well, about 20 rockets came out and just annihilated the tanks almost immediately. They were shooting... Uh, you know, large caliber rounds at us. And, you know, it was just like, let's get the hell out of here. Let's try to get some cover. Because as soon as we got in the open, that's when they opened up on us. We ended up pulling back and um, we couldn't understand that the the jets were coming in, the Phantoms the, were coming in and they were dropping napalm and 500 pound bombs and everything else. And we thought that they were going to be eliminated because, you know, that's why we were supposed to assault the the tree line because they were they're probably all blown away well they all went underground and nobody probably died the battle of waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history but what happened next my name's david montgomery and i'm the host of the siecla a history podcast that tackles exactly that Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. So, you know, then uh, we ended up uh, getting out of that particular situation. And, and, and in August, we next operation that was a nightmare was Operation Cochise. And uh, it was in the Quezon Valley again. We went back to the like where the uh, Operation um, Beaver Cage was. So we go back in there and, you know, they, we were supposed to attack a, a specific unit 
of NVA. They had come back into the valley and they were going to take it over. And so the strategy was, you know, to sweep. And but the problem was they had a different strategy. Their strategy was to just take all these men and just have ambushes everywhere. You know, they have their machine gun set up, and as you're sweeping, then all of a sudden, here's a tree line, and it's opening up on you. They're hitting you from haystacks. They were hitting you from uh, just about any concealed position from little ravines or whatever they could to get you. And it was just out of artillery range. That was one of the crazy things about Cochise, that uh, we had a lot of artillery support, but this was just a little out of their uh, the 105's range. So anyway... I remember running into the tunnel complex and I remember going into one of the tunnels. They asked for a volunteer and I went thinking I'd be a hero. And well, I got to tell you, crawling in that hole and and it was one of the most nightmarish experiences of my life, just crawling in deep and deep and deep into that hole. And the further I got, I, I just, all I could see is an AK or a pistol coming out and just shooting down the hole. I mean, they'd have a perfect target down in the hole here. You know, I remember that I was walking and I was my sight was down the tunnel, uh, looking straight down the tunnel, and I'm I'm crawling and I've got my 45, not my 45, the the sergeant's 45, and I'm getting out and I'm getting closer down the hole, and all of a sudden I felt something hit my face, you know, some like a heavy string or a cloth or something, and I backed up real fast and I put the flashlight up there and and looked, and it was a snakeskin. They had hung a snake inside that particular hole, and it had shed its skin. And I backed out of that hole like you can't even believe. I, I mean, that was the last time I ever entered, um, you know, a cave hole. So anyway, we went further, and then we spent the night, you know, in our lines and woke up the next morning. And, you know, we were held up because there was ambushes everywhere. And our lieutenant wanted to play hero. And we were moving in a certain direction and there was a tree line and he wanted to make sure that the tree line was okay. So he sent my squad down towards there. Uh, by the way, in Buffalo, Sergeant Pike and Malloy were killed right out. I mean, these are our heroes. If any two men could actually live through that battle, it would have been them. And now you're looking at, you've lost that. My squad leader was became the platoon sergeant. And now I've got Sergeant Jones in August 67, and uh, Sergeant Jones was a great leader. And, you know, Francis just wanted to send our squad out, and he argued with Francis about, you know, it wasn't a good idea and all that. And Francis still wanted it done, so he said he would lead the squad down to the tree line. And, yeah, you know, we got within, I don't know, 40, 40 yards of the tree line when it just opened up on us. I mean, you have no idea. You got a squad of Marines and you've got maybe 50 people with machine guns shooting at you. I mean, you, you find cover so fast. You, I went behind a dike, um, one of the dikes that was there and bullets were just, I know they were missing me because you could hear them zinging by you. And I remember laying there and, and that was from like 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning and just laying there, and uh, guys are wounded everywhere. And I remember seeing one of the corpsmen get up and pop his head above that uh, dike. And I remember seeing him getting shot right in the head. I mean, guys were dead, laying everywhere. This is my squad is out there. 
So what does Francis do? You know, he's he's going to get us some help. But in the meantime, we're we're out there in the heat in this rice paddy, and you know, I'm I'm throwing a magazine, uh, you know, a burst magazine uh, over the dike every once in a while and keeping my head down because of everything I'm seeing. Everybody's getting you know hit. So finally, the um, the other squad came out there, and of course, that was a stupid thing. I mean, if we got wiped out, they they came out and they got wiped out. And of course, you know, he said, well, I'm going to send this third squad. Well, one of the squad leaders, he says, I'm not going to do it. He said, it's, it's a, you know, it's terrible. This is a horrible decision. You know, you just had two squads wiped out. Why should I take mine down there and have them all killed? But, you know, he said he relieved them of command and put another guy in charge. And he said, I'll do it. And they just tried to figure another way to do it. And uh, they got wiped out. And so by the end of the day, uh, which I finally was able to crawl out of there at three in the afternoon. And uh, by the end of the day, there was only seven of us left in that platoon. Uh, the second platoon was literally wiped out. So the jets couldn't come in. Nobody could come in to go after the people in the tree line because, I mean, we were so close. They were using us for bait. And that's why they couldn't use the advantages of air power. Then that night, I had to go back to the tree line and get our bodies. In the middle of the night, there's only seven of you left, and you got to go get the guys that died out there. And um, that experience is like one of the toughest experiences of my life. We finally ended up out of that uh, particular operation. Then we ended up on Medina, which was in October. Oh, and by the way, Jones was killed. And of course, that was the end of all the good leaders for a long time. Everybody we had was pretty, they weren't like the, the original. It's like we were soldiers uh, in that battle. You know, you had Mel Gibson and all these great leaders. Can you imagine if they got killed? You know, that whole thing would have fell apart. They probably would have been overrun and, and annihilated. But you have these great leaders that are able to, you know, put up a defense and put up and know just where to send the guys. They just, they know how to move and tactics. So anyway, on Medina, uh, we were, we were, Operation Medina was pretty, we weren't doing the sweeping. We were being the blocking force and another unit of Marines, another battalion of Marines was, I believe it was two battalions, was going through the High Lang Forest and pushing all the NVA towards us. And of course, we're supposed to, you know, wipe them out. Of course, at that time, Captain Recek was uh, promoted up in battalion. And uh, we got a new guy, and he came in from supply. He wasn't very good. I mean, he didn't set the lines up. We, we knew what we were doing. We had set up the lines, and he came around and changed the lines. He took us off the crest of the hill, pulled us back. Uh, was the dumbest move. I was like, I was so upset because by then I knew what the heck I was doing. And now they're giving us leaders that don't know what they're doing. And that night, uh, that's when it really got scary. No one came out to the lines to tell us that the LPs were coming in because they were out there and they were out there in force. So there's no illumination whatsoever. Come to find out that the CO wasn't telling anything. He was like scared, hiding in his hole. And when they, everybody was saying, we need to have illumination. And he kept on saying, we're going to give away our position. Well, we needed light. It was so dark. It was so dark. You couldn't see. And you're terrified in your hole just waiting for them. I remember one of the uh, OPs, outposts that came in, came right over my hole. And the one guy that uh, went right into the 
you know, to our command post behind us. And he stopped and he said, there's hundreds. And I'm going, oh my gosh, nobody's coming. Nobody's talking to us, you know? And then all of a sudden, it's like two in the morning, 2.30, all of a sudden they were throwing charges at us right in front of us. And the charges were exploding. And the guys to my left were opening fire. And I had a new guy and I told him, don't open fire. I said, look at these guys that are firing. They're giving away their positions. Every time they fired, it was like a strobe light in their face. And they were saying, hey, we're right here. You know what I mean? That type of thing. And I knew that that was the wrong thing to do. I had put all my hand grenades right in my parapet, right in front of me. You know, there was uh, all my, I always carried a lot of hand grenades, let me tell you. And uh, the guy next to me put all his hand grenades. We had about 12, maybe 15 hand grenades in, in the parapet. And I was just waiting. I was just so waiting for, you know, I knew these guys were coming. They kept on probing the lines and throwing grenades. And actually, they didn't throw grenades. They, I think they were more like a, a charge, you know, like a, an explosive uh, charge, not so much a, like a, a chai comms. When, when they throw a chai com, there's sparks comes out of the handle and, and you could see them in the air because I had seen them previously and what they looked like. So I didn't think it was that. And then uh, when I when I knew they were coming, I mean, I knew that's when they started, you know, just throwing a lot of grenades and stuff like that at us in the lines. They didn't know where I was. They didn't know where my hole was, but they knew where everybody to the left of me was. And uh, they were coming. And uh, as soon as I realized I just, I, and I, one thing I did with my hand grenades, when I was in a situation like that, I would take that cotter pin that you pull out and I would straighten all that pin out so that it was very easy to pull the pin in. You wouldn't be struggling. So when they started coming, I just threw every one of those hand grenades in front of my hole, every single one of them. And as they got closer and we got down in the hole because there was going to be a lot of explosions in front of us. And that's, it was like a minefield in front of us when they went off. It was bam, 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 bam. You know, so all of them in front of us were pretty well wiped out. There was drag trails and everything after the, you know, in the morning when I went to see it. Plus there was a lot of dead bodies out in front of my hole. But to the left of us, they had completely overrun the lines. Almost the entire third platoon was wiped out. And they went right down into the command post and, you know, they, the, all the guys put up a good fight. Now I remember turning around and you could see green tracers going one way and, and you could see the red tracers going the other way. You could see them like all over the place tracers. And, um, you know, I wanted to start shooting, but I knew our guys were down there and I, I would, didn't want to hit any of our guys and I wasn't sure of who was who. So, you know, I just held my fire but the guys that were down there were shooting at them, and, and they ended up killing quite a few and actually captured some. And then they swept out of the lines and, and uh, killed, you know, even more guys on their way out. So this unit uh, did a number, and it was all because of this captain that came in from supply. You've got to understand, you don't think you're going to make it out alive. At this particular point, even before that, you say, you know, I, I, I got here in February and it's already October. I don't leave until almost March. I have all this time. I, I, I don't think I'm ever going to make it. And of course, then, you know, because we're this special unit, we ended up, you know, going back into the DMZ. And then our particular company took the lines. Uh, we went to Contien first. And from Contien, 
Then we walked over to A3, which is all part of the McNamara line. And so we're on a hill. And I got to tell you, there was no grass. There was nothing but bomb holes over this A3 area. And uh, these guys that were walking out looked like, you know, like in World War II, you see the guys with their heads down walking away. They're, they're just all nasty, dirty. And you can see it on their face. They got beards. They just look horrible. And that's what these guys look like. And, you know, we're kind of refreshed. And that's what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to be at A3 and take their positions while they they took some kind of break somewhere else. And um, so we took the lines. And I, I remember getting into the hole and thinking, this is this place is horrible. And it can't get any worse. And that's when the monsoon rain started. I couldn't have been further wrong from the truth. I mean, it literally rained and we got hit three times a day. They would mortar us three times a day. They would come in and we'd send mortars back at them. And every time a chopper would come in, they would try to, you know, knock out the chopper. So we didn't get a lot of supplies. I mean, it was just miserable. But another unit came in, took our place. We were going to start. We didn't know what we were going to do, but eventually we were going to be on a base right on the ocean just south of the DMZ, just a short distance away, maybe a mile and a half, two miles from the DMZ. And we had to build a base right there. And we were supposed to stop all the infiltration from the DMZ. There was a lot of infiltration uh, that, that came down and nobody could handle the amount of in infiltration. Nobody could stop this infiltration. And, and here's our unit. We're going to be, you know, stopping this infiltration. And uh, I remember when we were we were leaving A3 and we're walking and there's a huge explosion to my right. I remember walking and seeing all these holes everywhere and I thought it was just a, like a mortar barrage or something. And when that explosion happened and someone said, minefield, we were in the middle of a minefield. I stopped immediately and was looking around wondering, now what the hell do I do? I, I mean, I, I don't. I had no clue. I'm standing there in the middle of a minefield, and here's all the other guys around me. They're all like, we're all looking at each other, wondering if we were going to step on a mine. And we had to back our way. I remember turning around on one foot and looking for the the steps that that I had taken, and I remember following my steps that I thought I took. And each and every step was like, am I going to die? Am I going to die? I don't just slowly work back. By the way, that, that were, they were bouncing betties, and bouncing betties are pretty horrible. Uh, we ran into them, you know, through all of our sweeps. We ran into, you know, butterfly mines, all these different punchy pits. Um, also, uh, we get to C4, and we had to run patrols up towards the DMZ. And uh, that's when the last battle for me was was at uh, in January, just after Tet. Um, in January after Tet, uh, we would run up to this certain place called the washout. And that's where, you know, whenever there was the monsoon rains or whatever big rain they would have, all that water from the flatland would run out to the ocean and it would run right straight through the washout right there. And so it was kind of a slight depression with no trees, no bushes, no nothing, just an open space from one location to another location where we were. So I remember as soon as we hit that every day, mortars would come in and hit us. It was just like a game they played and we played. All right, they would send a patrol like up and it would be a platoon size and we'd come up and 
we'd hit a certain spot and then they would mortar us. And then we would get down, we'd send mortars back on them and then we'd back off. And we did this day after day after day. Well, the the guys who were in charge decided that they were going to, um, they said, you know, we're going to wipe these guys out. So we're, we got a plan. And so the plan was, is to send a platoon and to sneak them in there over the washout in the middle of the night and wait for the NVA that were going to be coming from the DMZ. Well, you know, our lieutenant and our, and our sergeant was, without a doubt, they were, they were the worst ever. They were the worst of all of them. And, you know, I'm trying to, I hear I've all this great experience and I'm point man going out there and I'm seeing all the signs of, you know, they're here, they're already here. And so just before we crossed the washout, I, I just said to him, I don't want to cross this washout. I, I got to tell you what, why don't I do a real quick recon? I'll go check the other side a little bit and then I'll have confidence enough to know that we will be safe. But I don't want to walk in the middle of the washout and see us all die. I just don't want that to happen. He says, well, hurry up. Well, I ended up taking, you know, my, my cartridge belt off. I left uh, all my grenades and everything. I only had my M16 and a couple of magazines in my pocket. And I crawled like a lizard all the way through that uh, washout. And then I got over to the other side. And as soon as I hit the other side, I mean, I heard voices. I mean, it wasn't just like one or two guys talking. This was like three or four or five guys talking and laughing. And I'm going, oh, my God, they're here. So I, I would have thrown a grenade if I had a grenade. I didn't have any grenades with me. I wasn't going to jump up and attack them. I didn't know who was there. So what I did is I crawled back and I figured we, we could call in artillery on those guys. That would just wipe the heck out of them. The artillery was at the Quaviat River. Or that's all you have to do is back off and bam the hell out of it. Uh, that's not what happened. The, apparently our sergeant and lieutenant didn't know how to call in an airstrike, uh, not an airstrike, but a artillery. And uh, that was the beginning of the debacle. He, he wanted to make me cross that opening even though I told him that they were on the other side. He wanted, he wanted me to go across that, that washout and just bring everybody to get killed. And there was just no way I was going to do it. I said, you know, I know that they're there if we have to. I think it narrows over by the ocean. I think uh, maybe we'll, why don't we go over there and see it? And it was like 3.30 in the morning. He agreed to it, and we walked over there. And I remember the mist that came in. I mean, it was so—it was almost 100% humidity. It was you could hardly see in front of you. It was so misty, and so we ended up crossing near the ocean of this washout, and we're walking in a single file. Meanwhile, our our lieutenant, because of what I'm talking about, he decides not to go that way. He decides to go to the left in the open area where there was cover and, and a pagoda. I could direct the battle from there, and he's sending the, the other two squads right up to the towards the DMZ, and I knew they were there. I knew they were there. I just knew they were all over the place, but you know I couldn't convince anybody, and we just got further and further up, and he kept on. Finally, we dropped off a squad, uh, and they had machine guns with them, and then our squad, we continued further north. We got to... Uh, there was a big dune in front of us, and we either had to go right or left. And so right was to the ocean, left was to deeper within that, that area. And I looked at the ground, and sure enough, there was a uh, – I remember when I was in high school, 
I lived near Rainbow Beach in Chicago. And uh, at three or four in the morning, we would go out and go skinny dipping in, in Lake Michigan. And I remember as I was running on that wet sand that there's white, pure white sand underneath. And the top sand is, is like dark brown. So as you walked, you could see the footprints of white as you ran to the beach. Well, here is the same thing I'm seeing. We've got wet sand all around us. And here's this path about two to two and a half feet wide. Now, that wasn't footprints. That's a whole group of NVA walking down that path. And this guy is telling me I have to walk down that path. And then here it is. It's going like on 4, 4.30 in the morning. I'm terrified. I'm telling him, he said, if I don't go down the path, I go in the back and he'll put me up for cowardice and face of the enemy. I'm going, what the heck do I do? Well, I don't want somebody else who don't know what they're doing. I want to be in the lead here. And if I spring the ambush, I'm going to spring the ambush. So I ended up walking down and we got pretty far down there before I saw this plastic top on the uh you know, someone had put plastic over their heads and had propped it up with sticks. And I and I looked, it looked like just a piece of plastic that kind of blew there. And I remember sticking my head down and getting closer to it, thinking maybe somebody might be in there. And sure enough, two guys popped their heads up and I had my M16 all in full automatic and uh, put 20 rounds and, and got both of those guys yelled ambush right. That's when the Chancom grenades started coming out from our to our right. And, you know, I screamed at the, the sergeant and was telling him, see, I told you they were here. And that was the beginning of the battle. I mean, that battle went until three in the afternoon. We were pinned down. My M16 jammed on me. Uh, guys were getting hit everywhere. Uh, it, it was one hell of a battle. Well, uh, I remember at the end of the battle, I ended up, uh, they, they're going to send me back into the DMZ. It was now February. And uh, they're going to send me back into the DMZ on a patrol. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die for sure. A lot of the guys who in their 13th month, they ended up dying. And I'm here I am. I'm going into my 13th month. And I'm thinking, I'm just, this is the end. And that's when he told me my third Purple Heart had come through and that I was going home. And uh, I, I got to tell you, it was one hell of a tour of Vietnam. And it was on a grunt level. Uh, I'm not a hero. Those guys that died, they are the heroes. They're the ones. You know, um, you know, when I first got there, I was a new guy. I was naive. I didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground. And I was an FNG, which is a new guy. And uh, I thought I knew why we were there fighting for liberty and for freedom and everything. But what I started to notice after a while is that I questioned why we were there because I remember thinking, who are we fighting? We're fighting the North Vietnamese. Those are the people of the North. And we're fighting the Viet Cong. And who are the Viet Cong? They're the South Vietnamese. So who the hell are we fighting? I mean, are, are we in there fighting for the South Vietnamese if they're trying to kill us? Everywhere I went, these people were out of the Stone Age, and I started to develop uh, like a, you know, not a not a fighting for liberty, but just trying to survive, trying to make it out, trying to make it, try to make it home. And, and I remember thinking so many times that I was never going to make it out alive, or I was going to come out wounded so bad that you know, I might be crippled for the rest of my life. And for what? 
I wasn't even sure why we were there. And so, uh, you know, I, I got smarter and I kept on getting smarter. You know, my instincts were, were sharp as a tack. I, I, I remember uh, always thinking and always being aware if, if someone was shooting at me, I was down so fast. And so, you know, I really began to like doubt the war about what was, what was going on. And I would start talking to the other guys. And, you know, the question came up, uh, you know, why are we here? Are we really here to help these people when they want to kill us? They just wanted their life. They just wanted the farm. They just wanted to be left alone. And uh, they didn't care whether it was going to be communist or, you know, whether the Americans were going to be there and save them. They just, uh, that's, that's the way it all became. And it became a, a nightmare for a lot of Marines. Now, you know, one thing I also want to say is I just explained all, you know, I'm explaining everything that's happening. And you wonder why some of these guys can't talk about the war. You wonder why, why can't, you know, why is he so tight-lipped? These are scars. And it took me hundreds of tears, thousands of tears to write this book because, you know, the, these moments in, in the book that are, are just so horrendous and to get them out. And it's very cathartic to write a book. And I, and I would highly recommend, even if it doesn't get anywhere or do anything, just getting the stories out of your, out of your body. I noticed that I'm able to talk about them now and I'm able to you know, honor those guys in my unit that should have been honored. That was Sergeant Bill Taylor. To hear more of Bill's stories from Vietnam, read his book, On Full Automatic. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.